Hear the word of God. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I've read all of that. I'm really only going to be able to speak to verses 8 and 9 today. Um, uh, 10 and 11 will have to wait till next Sunday, which is always affirming to me that we're a community of believers, that we don't have to say everything at any one setting because we'll continue to be together. Um, as a community, it's great that God enables us to tie all kinds of things together. We're able to tie sermons and Sunday school classes and Bible studies and covenant groups and prayer gatherings with all the experiences of life. The birth of babies, hospitals, cancer, graduation, weddings, all of life experience. And they pull all together to enable us to grow up, to enable us to mature. The great thing is that God hasn't called us to live isolated lives. That's why the author of Hebrews says that we should never neglect the assembly of ourselves together. That isn't only a Sunday morning admonition, but it's saying we need to live life together because we need to be a community of people informed by God's Word and dwelled by His Spirit so that we can mature, though not without some difficulty. I said all that to say that need to be here next Sunday to get the rest of this sermon. But I'm sure you will be. That's a nice thing, isn't it? God so wills. But for today, Peter exhorts us uh, with this word. That's amazing to me, just to think that Peter exhorts us. I don't know if you ever catch that. When, when Scott was praying, I was, I was caught by the fact that he said, oh, or it wasn't his exact words, but how astounding it is, how amazing it is, to address God. I don't know if you ever think about that. That we address God. I mean, there's people that won't get, you know, won't pick up the phone when I call. Uh, uh, but God, we address Him. That, that should astound us. And, and now we're hearing from Peter, who walked with Jesus, but even more than that, who's so moved by the Holy Spirit that he's writing the very words of God. He's, from him is being breathed out, as the scripture would put it, the truth, the word of God. And that's just amazing. That, in some sense, I suppose, should, should cause us to be very serious as we listen. This is the word of God. It isn't just the word of a human being. This is, this is the word of God. We need to listen, pay attention, meditate upon, really think about this. There shouldn't be any desires for daydreaming and dozing and so forth and so on, because this is the word of God. And that seems to me, at least in part, to be Peter's point. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Uh, on the one hand, he's saying that because there's this enemy, an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone, you, me, to devour. Peter says, be sober-minded about that. And because, you see, everything is at stake for us here. It's, our very souls are at stake. This, this, this enemy, this adversary, this devil who seeks to devour, does, wants to devour us, our very faith, our very souls. And so our souls are at stake. And even more than that, he, he says in verse 10 that 
The glory of God is at stake, and the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory. So our, our souls are at stake. The glory of God is at stake. And so he says, sober up. Be watchful. This is very serious stuff about which we're thinking. Peter's concerned because there's a real enemy. There's a real adversary, this real devil. So he says, be sober-minded to be watchful. Now, when we think of somebody who's sober-minded, when we think of somebody who's sober, we think of someone who's not intoxicated. When we think of somebody who's intoxicated, we think of someone whose mind has been so dulled, so numbed, that that person can't think clearly, can't process clearly, can't understand clearly, that, that their, their mental capacities and thus everything else about them is inhibited, is, 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 is finding great difficulty. And that per person is in great danger of being harmed or, being, or falling prey to that which would even harm them because they're not paying attention, because they don't have the faculties in order to, to pay attention rightly. And he says, be careful, there's something like that out there, there's a danger like that out there. Kids, for instance, can be intoxicated with the freedom of knowing that their parents are gone for the weekend, but it's amazing how sobering it is, isn't it, when the parents show up a day early. They begin to see things more clearly, because, because nothing sobers us up more than a jolt of reality, chest pains. And a man who is intoxicated by eternal youth can sober up that guy. When we think that marriage is fine, it's amazing how the phrase, you know, I don't think I know you anymore, can sober us up. A jolt of reality. And so Peter says, let me tell you, there's a jolt of reality. There's some spiritual being. There's some reality here that you can't see that's an adversary. It's prowling around like a roaring lion. It's powerful. So he said, you need to be sober-minded. You need to be serious about this. You need also to be watchful. When we think of somebody who's watchful, we think somebody who's alert, someone who's, who's awake, who's not asleep. You see, when someone's asleep, they, they can't be aware of the danger that exists, and they can't be taking all the necessary, making all the necessary preparations to keep that danger from um, coming to them. That's why wives in the middle of the night often wake up their husbands from a sound, wonderful, peaceful sleep and say, did you hear that? Because, because they're afraid that if he's asleep, he won't hear that. If he won't hear that, then we won't take the necessary precautions and preparations in order to keep us safe from what might be out there. That's why the, the, the disciples of Jesus, when he was sleeping in the hull of the boat, and the great storm came up, woke him up. Why? Because when he was asleep, he was unaware. And so Peter says, listen, don't be asleep. There's a real danger here. There's a real enemy here, this devil. And he says he's your adversary, and he prowls around like a roaring lion, meaning he's against you, adversary, and he's a roaring lion. Now, some would say and have said that that means that the Christians don't really need to worry about this devil because all he can do is roar. He can't really touch you, but, but that's not Peter's point at all. The roaring lion image simply refers to the fact that he is very powerful. If he wasn't powerful, if there wasn't some danger, Peter wouldn't be worried about it. He wouldn't be saying, be sober-minded, be watchful, look out. He's saying, this is real. 
this Satan, this devil is a real person, not a human person, but a real spiritual person, has a personality, has a will, has an agenda, has a measure of power, and is against all that God intends, and is against God's people. Revelation 12 speaks of this Satan, this devil there, referred to as the dragon, and says that he's filled with fury, and he makes war against all those who keep the commandments of God and have or, or are steadfast to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. See, he, he makes war against us and he's furious and he knows his time is short and so he's doing everything he possibly can to devour, not to maim simply, not to simply harm, but to devour. That's his intention. And so Peter says, I want you to be aware of this. I want you to understand this spiritual reality. In fact, as we look at this one, the devil, we see that his, his names bring various characteristics that are true of him. The word devil simply means the accuser. And he certainly is that. He's the accuser, the scripture says. We, we see that in, in the book of Job, for instance, as we go and, 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 and read the first couple of chapters. We begin with the first chapter and you remember there's, there's Satan. He's going to and fro on the earth and then he shows up and, and, and God actually speaks first to Satan and said, Have you noticed my servant Job? Uh, sometimes when I pray, I say, God, if you ever run into Satan, don't mention me. I would just assume, you know, you leave me out of this whole equation. But, but, but in that case, and, and Job said, yes, I've seen him. And, and God says, he's righteous. And he says, yes, but that's because you've blessed him so. I mean, why wouldn't he be? And, but if you take these things away, then he'll curse you. And God says, all right, go. And we see that accusation that if you don't bless him, he'll curse you. In Zechariah chapter 3, there's an interesting little, little setup. There's the Lord, there's the priest named Joshua, and Satan, all together. And, and the point of that particular passage is that the priesthood in those days was impure, and there's the priest, Joshua, standing dressed in dirty or filthy robes, rags. Now God's about to clean all of that up, but, but at that point in time, Satan stands as the one who is the accuser. So he's the accuser, this one, Satan. He's the tempter. Certainly even as he tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as he tempted Jesus, as he tempts us to disobey, to turn from faith, to turn from God. That's this tempter, Satan. He's the deceiver of the world, the scripture said. He's the evil one. In fact, we see his power we see his power because even Jesus refers to him, to him as the prince of this world. The Apostle Paul refers to him as the god of this age. Now, that doesn't mean that there are two gods and Satan's one god and God's the other god and they're dueling it out all the time. No, no, no. Satan isn't God. And when Paul refers to him as the god of this age, he isn't saying he's, a, he's the god or a real god. He's simply saying that this age reflects him. That this age glorifies him, this evil age. And that he has power in the midst of it. This prince of the world, this God of this age. And we see that he has power over nature in some instances and power over nations. If we go back to the, the situation with Job, we find that when God finally gives Satan the authority to go into the lives of, of, of Job and his family, that he ushers all kinds of forces against them both natural and, 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 and even human. 
the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans come against, for instance, uh, the servants and even the animals and kill the animals and kill the servants. Then the power of nature seems to come because fire comes down from heaven in some sense and kills the sheep and the servants, probably the shepherds who are looking after those sheep. And then a big gust of wind comes and, 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 and collapses the house where Job's children are and they all die. And we see all of those forces, natural and physical and so forth, coming together. All under the power, it seems of this Satan, this evil one. We see the impact he has in people's lives. Right before uh, the um, arrest of Jesus, the scripture said that Satan entered Judas. We see in the life of Paul, 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, he says that it was given to him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. So this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was in the life of Paul, he attributed it to being a messenger from Satan to buffet him, to harm him. In fact, he writes to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18, and he says, I would have come to you earlier, essentially, but Satan hindered me. In fact, in Revelation, in chapter 2, in verse 10, Jesus tells the church in Smyrna, he says, Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested and for ten days you will have tribulation. He said he has that kind of power to, to, in a sense, throw you into prison. So Peter's saying, look out, this is a real adversary, this is a real power. He really can do these kinds of things. Now, Peter doesn't have to convince these readers that the devil is real. At least he doesn't seem to have to because all he does is mention him. It seems that they understand who this devil is. Uh, Peter himself, no doubt, knew well. Certainly from the Old Testament scriptures, he knew Genesis 3, he knew the serpent, he knew the fall of Adam and Eve because of the temptation, the deception of this Satan, this devil. He knew the situation with Job. He knew uh, the situation in Zechariah. He understood it from the life of Jesus, no doubt. He knew the temptation that Jesus had suffered in the wilderness. He could see the devastation that demons had on people's lives and how Jesus had cast them out, but most certainly in his own life. There was a time when Jesus was with his disciples and he said to them, who do people say that I am? And of course, it came around to Peter and finally he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was great. In fact, Jesus said, you didn't know this, but my Father in heaven gave you this. And then a few minutes later, Jesus began to talk to his disciples about how it was that he was going to go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the, of the, of the elders and be killed and rise on the third day. And Peter said, that's not going to happen. And Jesus turned around at him and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter, no doubt, would begin to think, well, that was a thought in my head. That made sense to me. That came from my heart. And then to realize that he was functioning in such a way as to try to fulfill the very agenda of Satan himself. He knew this evil one. And he knew his power and deception. Not only that, the night that Jesus was betrayed, you remember that he turned and he looked at Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And I suspect at the end of that night, after Peter had denied Jesus those three times, that he felt rather sifted. He knew the power 
of this adversary. And so he speaks to them, to us, and says, be serious about this. Understand what's at stake. There's one out there who's ready to devour you, to eat you alive. Now, I must say that when I talk about Satan and his power, it's difficult it's in, in the sense that it's mysterious. I, I don't understand all this stuff. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Then why do we pay him? <laughs> I, I, I don't know how it is exactly that Satan has power over these things because God is ultimately sovereign over everything. We know that. God is the sovereign one. Even in verse 11, uh, Peter in a doxology says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. That is to God. God is the one who, is, who has dominion. He's the one who rules. And when he rules as king, his will is ultimately accomplished. No one can thwart him. God is the one who has authority over nature. God is the one who has authority over all events. As we say, that... God ordains everything that comes to pass. Nothing comes to pass without God ordaining it, saying, yes, that can happen. Because he is the sovereign one. He is the king. He is God. And so, yes, he does have sovereign, ultimate control over nature, over catastrophes. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 45, God takes that, very responsibility. Isaiah 45, verse 7, he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is ultimately sovereign over all these things, however mysterious that is to us. And so when we speak about Satan, and we speak about his power, we first need to do that in the context of the ultimate sovereignty of God. Satan doesn't do anything that God doesn't permit. Even in the life of Job, we see it so clearly there. Satan comes to God and says, hey, let me at him. And, and God says, well, you can, but you can't touch his body. That was the first restriction. And then he lays off that restriction, but then you can we see that God controls even the trials that come into our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tell, tells us that no trial has overtaken us, overcome us, but such as is common to man. Uh, because God is sovereign over all these things. That's the first thing. The second thing we realize is that, as I said earlier, that Satan really isn't on par with God. He's not omnipotent. He doesn't have sovereign power. He only has power that's allotted to him by God for whatever reason. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere present. If two people on the face of the earth said, I saw Satan at 2 o'clock on Tuesday, somebody's wrong. Hey, they're both probably wrong, but I don't think he shows up like that. But, but he's not omnipresent. That's why he has all these fallen angels who kind of do his bidding. So he's not omnipotent, he's not, not omniscient to know everything, he's not omnipresent, he isn't everywhere present, he's a created being. Now we don't know in great detail about the creation of Satan. There's no chapter in the Bible that says, and God created Satan. There's a couple of hints at how he came into being, you can read about them in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. But both of those passages deal with nations of the world. The Ezekiel 28 passage deals with the nation of Tyre, 
The Isaiah passage deals with the nation of Babylon. But as you read those passages, you get this sense that, that, that the prophets are speaking beyond just those nations, just those people, just those humans, and are going beyond and behind and underneath the evil that lurks and speaks of this personal being and his creation does. He's a created being does. He's not, not God, but God gives him this measure of power and authority as God wills. We know that Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. We know that took place so that the, the power of Satan over those, we could say this a number of different ways, for whom Christ died, or those who would believe, or those who were God's people, that the power of Satan was broken in such a way that they would come to faith, come to believe, but in others Satan would have the authority to continue to blind their eyes, as 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says. But we know that Satan hasn't yet gone to his eternal doom, that as this passage says, he roams around like a roaring lion, seeking someone, us, to devour. A day will come, you can read in Revelation chapter 20, where he will receive his eternal punishment and get cast into the pit. But until then, he's still hanging out. He's still running around. He's still lurking. He's still, as Paul writes in Ephesians in chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air at work in the sons of disobedience, those who are disobedient. And there he is. But what is most instructive, I think, which is why I think that Peter brings Satan into the picture at this point in time, is that the intention of all the circumstances of life, whatever their cause might be, the intention of all the circumstances of life, whatever their most direct cause might be, is different for God and Satan. You see, the intention of God for all the circumstances of life for his people is to bring us to repentance and to strengthen our faith. Even the calamities of life, you know this in Luke in chapter 13 as Jesus is speaking about uh, a very tragic situation. Uh, he says uh, this, he speaks of, of 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. You know that story, people come to Jesus and they begin to, t to mention various calamities to him and tragedies to him and say, what about this and what about this and why did this happen? And Jesus said, well, I even know of one. There were 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He said, listen, grab the truth here, that this should lead you to repentance, these tragic events, these difficult events. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it lays out all kinds of weird and wonderful things for us. We see that it's repentance that God is after. For instance, in Revelation chapter 9 and verse... Verse 9, I can begin reading. Um, let see, where is this? Ah, there you go. Verse, uh, verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and the tails, and their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. You go, what's that all about? Well, something big and disastrous has just happened. And then he goes on, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent 
of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see, hear, or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or sorcerers, sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. See, God's intention is to bring people to repentance through the various circumstances of life. And in the lives of believers, God's intention is to increase our faith. Satan's intention is to destroy faith in God. God's intention in the lives of believers is to increase faith. So Peter has been talking throughout his whole book about suffering. He's been talking about suffering in general, the the various sufferings and various griefs that we all go through that are difficult, but most especially this suffering that comes at the hands of others simply because we're believers in Christ. This persecution, the suffering from doing good. And throughout that whole course, he's, he's thinking about it from God's perspective. He's saying, listen, this suffering will test your faith and prove it genuine. This suffering will, will give you a testimony, a witness, so that other people will come to you and ask you about the hope that's in you. This suffering will bring blessing to you from, from God. But now he says, but I want you to be aware of something else. I want you to be aware also that in the midst of all this, there's one who will be trying to destroy your faith as suffering occurs. Because you see, suffering very often makes it difficult to trust in God. A couple of weeks ago, we heard from Psalm 73, where one who had attempted to live a righteous life found himself sort of at the bottom of the stack. That others who were living unrighteously had good health and a lot of money and ease of life and seemed to be having a great time. But here's this one who was living righteously who was having a horrible time. Life was not going well at all. And he began to think, have I lived my life in vain? Because you see, when suffering comes, especially suffering that we would think to be unjust, it creates in us this wondering. Is God really good? Is God really fair? And you see it in these days as we've experienced the tragedies of 9-11 and then December 26th with the tsunami. And as people suffer and as we watch television, as we see the people whose lives have been def- devastated and look at the, the children, we begin to wonder, is God fair? Is he just? Caregivers of Alzheimer's patients begin to wonder, what's this all about? Parents and spouses of soldiers killed in training accidents or by friendly fire begin to wonder, is there anybody watching this place? Is there someone really good who's sovereign over all of this? Tragedies take place and Spouse looks at another chronically ill spouse, wondering, I thought God was with us. Peter's saying, listen, I want you to be very careful. I want you to take this very seriously. I want you to understand that once you become a Christian, life isn't put in neutral. You simply don't coast your way to heaven, that there is difficulties in the context of life. And I understand that God says, and I'm still sovereign over all of that, and I have my intentions for that. But understand, there's a force, there's a person, there's a spiritual person, Satan, who's your adversary, and he's powerful to the degree that I give him power, but you can trust me because he'll even work for my glory in your life. 
And he says the way that you resist him, the way that you stand against him, is that you remain firm in your faith. And you may say, well, how, how can I do that? And, and I think you know this. Turn to Ephesians in chapter 6 very quickly. I won't do much with this, but I'll just call your attention to it and, and see how this pans out. Ephesians in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul speaks of the armor of God. He says, this is how you stand against the evil one. This is how you resist him. This is how you remain firm in your faith. Because, you see, Satan will target your faith. I mean, that's, that's the whole point here. He says, in the midst of suffering, what suffers is your faith, ultimately. And so, beware that that's Satan's agenda for your faith to suffer, not God's agenda for your faith to suffer. And you say, well, then how can I stand firm in faith in the midst of this suffering? And the Apostle Paul says, verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. He says, listen, in order for you to stand, you need to realize that the Bible is the Word of God. That's the truth, and that's the truth that you live by. If you live by any other truth other than the truth in Scripture, it means you're being eaten. It means you're being devoured by the evil one. But he says, as you stand trusting in the Scripture alone, that's why we must study it, that's why we must know it, that's why we must live by it day by day. It firms our faith. The belt of truth. Then he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that is, that if you're believing that you're accepted by God on the basis of anything other than the righteousness of Christ, you're being devoured. That's exactly what the evil one wants. The evil one wants us to think that in some measure, whether it's 1% or 10% or 50% or 80% or 100%, that in some measure we're accepted by God because of our own righteousness. As soon as we begin to think that, then he begins to eat away. He says the righteous breastplate means that you realize that you're accepted by God only because of Christ's righteousness, his giving that to you and you giving him your unrighteousness. Then, shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The only reason that you have peace with God, he says, the only reason at all that you have peace with God is because of this gospel of grace. It's not on the basis of what you've done, it's one on the basis of what Christ has done for you, his wonderful grace. So put that on your feet. Run around with that. That's your only peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith because once you've put on the belt of truth, once you understand that your righteousness comes from Christ alone, once you have your feet shod with the gospel of peace and understand that you have peace with God only because of the truth of the gospel, then your faith can be raised because it's right. It's right faith in Christ. And you take up that shield of faith and with that then all the accusations that come your way can be extinguished because you have the truth and you know why you're accepted by God because of Christ. And take the helmet of salvation that is having your mind secure that all this is true. And the sword of the Spirit then take up which is the Word of God carrying it around with you all the time clothed with it and now it's your sword. Praying at all times in the Spirit that is casting yourself dependently upon God, continuously saying, Oh God, work through your truth. Work in the knowledge of the righteousness of Christ. Work in me the very knowledge of peace with you. That you're praying all the time for yourself and for each other.
And the question is, how do you and I withstand this? How do you and I withstand this power, this spiritual power, this devil? Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says this, And they have conquered him, it is Christians, they have conquered him, the him there is Satan, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So listen, the way that he's conquered, the way that you stand firm in your faith is by the blood of the Lamb. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given to you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The very blood of the Lamb. And you see, the blood of the Lamb silences all the accusations of the devil. Because you see, when Satan comes to us and says, you're not worthy to be called a child of God. How can you think that you belong to God? We can just simply say to Satan, it's because of the blood of the Lamb. That's it. There's no other reason. You're exactly right, Satan. If you, if you think for a minute that, 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 that in and of myself, I'm not worthy to be called a child of God, you're right. But the blood of the Lamb trumps you, Satan. Because it's by the blood of the Lamb that I'm accepted by God, that my sins are forgiven, that the righteousness of Christ is given to me. And when Satan comes to us and says, you know, given all that's been happening in your life, I don't think God really loves you. And we can ponder that for a while and it can bring great discouragement until we think, the blood of the Lamb. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What greater love could there be? When I, when I turned my back on him, he died for me. Isn't that proof enough? No, 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 Satan, you have to understand that, that, that all these things that are happening in the context of my life don't disprove God's love at all because his love was proven once and for all by the blood of the Lamb. And when Satan comes and says, well, God isn't really fair, God isn't really just, there isn't really justice in God, how can all these unjust things be happening in the context of the world, maybe even in the context of your own life, there's no justice in God. And you can think about that and ponder that for a while, but, but after a while you say, no, 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 Satan, it's in the blood of the Lamb. God is so concerned about justice, so concerned about righteousness, that he just simply couldn't slide sin under the, under the mat. He had to deal with it justly, righteously. And so he poured his wrath out on his son. That's proof positive that he's a God of justice. So that's enough for me to believe that no one will ever suffer unjustly because of the blood of the Lamb. And the scripture says they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And so the question is, is that your testimony? Is that what you believe to be true? Is that what you're witnessing of when it comes to belonging to God and trusting in Him? Is it because of Christ and Christ alone? They conquered Him because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives 
even unto death. Meaning there was nothing more important to them than the testimony of the blood of the Lamb. That even when threatened with death, they took the blood of the Lamb because they knew that that's where there was protection. That's where there was power. That's where there was life. We sang, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. How do you keep from being devoured? By believing. How do you believe? By taking this truth of the word of God and making it your life. By understanding that your righteousness is Christ's righteousness given that you may stand in the presence of God to understand that the peace that you have with him comes through Christ and Christ alone to understand that the faith that you use the shield is based on this truth it's not a leap, it's reasonable because of the blood of the Lamb let's pray, Father in heaven I pray now that as we look upon this table that you would set apart this bread and this juice in a way that enables us to see Jesus. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would attend this table by your very presence so that we come up to it when we take this bread and dip it in the cup, that you are with us. And in the midst of all of that, as we think upon the blood of the Lamb and how it silences the evil one, we pray that even in our coming and even in our taking and even in our eating, that the evil one would be silenced in the course of our lives, understanding that our testimony is in the blood of the Lamb. And though he may kill us, we will not forsake the truth. We will not stop believing. We will not stop depending upon the blood of the Lamb. Father, please work in us. This bread, this juice, very common things we pray you would set apart now to remind us of Jesus and to encounter him. That we may stand firm in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. You understand the truth of God, and you understand your righteousness is from Christ a gift, and your peace with him is simply on the basis of Christ and Christ alone, and thus that you depend upon Christ and receive him alone as he's offered in the gospel, which is freely. Not on the basis of anything we've done, but only on the basis of what he has done and who he is. And that it's your heart's desire to live a life which becomes a follower of Christ that is to continue to resist the evil one, standing firm in faith, sober-minded and watchful. So let me ask these two sections, if that's true of you, to come down this section to my left. These do down the section to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, 
And as you do, think upon the blood of the Lamb that silences the accuser and meet with Jesus. Please come. Who took on flesh 
Yeah. 